Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. It's Friday. It is 5 p.m. Congratulations, you have made it to the weekend. My name is Emily Wilkins, your host today. It has been an absolutely packed week for news. We'll be recapping President Biden's climate summit, catching up on infrastructure, diving into the historic vote the House took this week on D.C. statehood. I am Emily Wilkins. If you've never heard of me before, it is because this is my very first time sitting in a host chair on Sound On. Very luckily, I'm joined by two stalwarts of the show, Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. We're just going to get right into it. Earlier today, our colleague David Weston spoke with John Kerry, the special presidential envoy for climate change, to discuss President Biden's two-day virtual climate summit and what he thought was a Here's the sound on that. I mean, the world came together in a rather extraordinary fashion for a virtual summit with President Xi and President Putin, Prime Minister Modi, uh, President Macron, the Chancellor of Germany, and so on. I mean, you had a global meeting at which uh, more than 55, about 55 percent of global GDP committed to try to hold the Earth's temperature increase to 1.5 degrees which is critical because that's what the scientists say we have to do to avoid the worst consequences of climate. And, and for anybody investing, with disclosure being talked about and already in place in Europe and elsewhere, financial institutions are going to increasingly being called on to be accountable for their long-term vision for the investments that they're making and the risk that is involved. So that's one thing. Uh, in addition to that, you had an upping of ambition among many nations. Japan stood up and said, we're going to reduce our emissions by 45 to 50 percent. You had a host of countries say they're making some addition, they're going to try and do more, they're going to let, put out plans over the course of the next months before the November Glasgow negotiation. Uh, and I think it's a very significant that everybody talked about the crisis of climate. So there's no avoiding it. This is a global challenge. And that leads you to the second part of your question, which is these banks and, and uh, financial institutions that are uh, allocating a certain amount of investment over the next years uh, to climate investment. Now, you know, we didn't, we, what we did was aggregate the amount they've already been putting in, and some of them have upped the amount they're putting in. So you have Bank of America and, and uh, Citi, and others uh, saying they're going to put about a trillion dollars over the course of the next 10 years, minimum. That's a floor. 
And the reason they're doing it is it's profitable. This is where the marketplace is moving. There's an enormous interest in hydrogen fuel potential, in storage, battery storage, in carbon capture. Uh, these are the technologies that are going to have to go into place in order to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. And I think the marketplace is already moving there. You've seen it move on coal. Coal now more expensive than alternative and renewable. So uh, I think what we did was sort of aggregate what the marketplace was already doing in a way that people see, whoa, there's $4.16 trillion from major banking institutions that's going to be investing in this sector. And I think it's going to create uh, even more Yep. investment um, in that sector and others. And Mr. Secretary, the president, President Biden, really stepped up right at the very beginning and said we're going to have our uh, greenhouse gas emissions compared to 2005 by 2030. That helps perhaps reestablish U.S. as a leader in this area. Your job in part, as I understand, is to go around the world as you have been doing and working with other countries. As a practical matter, you and I both know we're not going to be able to get done what we need without China, without India. China did not make an additional commitment, as I understand it. India has promised to work with you, but we don't have specifics there. When they turn to you and you go to them and they turn to you and say, look, you're an industrial nation. You've gotten the benefit of all this all these years. For you now to impose these sort of limitations on us holds us back. What do you say about the fairness argument? Well, what, what one has to point out is that uh, Earth, planet Earth, and the atmosphere doesn't measure who began when. It doesn't measure who, who particularly is doing it now. It measures the total amount of CO2. That's what the impact is from. And so China has as much interest in seeing us reduce these emissions and and create an equilibrium as we do. China is 30% of the world's emissions, we're 15%. Uh, and if you add Europe, we've got more than 55% right there of all the world's emissions. 20 countries equal 81% of all the emissions. Those 20 countries are going to have to step up and cut those emissions at a rate commensurate with what the scientists are telling us we need to do. This is not politics, it's not ideology, it's, it's, you know, two and two is four. The scientists are telling us this is exactly what's happening and this is why it's happening. And if you don't reduce by more, you're going to be paying a hell of a lot more money to clean up afterwards. And witness, a few years ago, we had three major hurricanes, Irma, Maria, and Harvey, and they dropped, uh, they, they wound up doing uh, something like $260 billion or so of damage that we paid out just to clean up after the storms. So the, the economists will tell you, we've reached a point in the climate crisis where it is now more expensive not to do something than it is to do the something. And so we need to be responsible. We need to get this done because most people will tell you it's existential. If you don't do that, there are gonna be profound dramatic impacts on our planet beyond what we've already seen in terms of fires, mudslides, floods, drought, melting of the ice caps, rising of the sea level. Uh, we're inviting disaster if we don't respond to this. And, and, and in the response, David, there's a remarkable amount of energy in economic uh, terms. There's a huge, yeah. really exciting economic future on the other side of this transition, which means 
building out transmission lines, a grid, uh, uh, deploying renewable portfolios, chasing uh, hydrogen fuel or battery storage or any of these other things. New products are going to come online and some of them are going to make an enormous difference in our ability to be able to meet this goal. Mr. Secretary, you, of course, are a very accomplished diplomat over the years. You were the Secretary of State. Uh, I wonder how you prioritize the various issues. As you said, this is a cataclysmic situation if we don't address it. At the same time, if you look at a place like China, there are those that say, look, we need a lot of solar panels. Most were made out in Zhangjiang, which is made by Uyghurs, which raise uh, human rights issues. Also, a lot of coal being used. How do you prioritize, though? Is there a trade-off between the two? Is it a zero-sum game? No, it is not. It is absolutely not. And that is one of the things President Biden uh, took pains to try to point out today in the session of the summit, where we had Bill Gates and other entrepreneurs talking about the remarkable entrepreneurial activity that is being engaged in. We had uh, uh, folks who are uh, CEOs of companies and folks who are involved in labor, all together supporting the notion that there are unbelievable number of jobs to be created in this transition. I mean, look at the transition right now to electric vehicles. The highest uh, valued automobile company in the world, I think still, is Tesla. Makes one product, electric vehicles. It is the future. People are betting on that. They understand that. And I see uh, all the other companies are beginning to chase it. Mercedes, Volkswagen, Ford, GM. GM has announced that by 2035, they're not going to make any other car other than an electric car. That is the future. And I think, uh, the, you know, the countries that get there first, you know how market share works. You grab that early market share, you've got something that could last you if you're smart for a long time. And, and I think the president wants to make sure that America is grabbing its share of the new technologies, of the innovation uh, and of this future. So much there. That was my colleague, David Weston, with John Kerry, the special presidential envoy for climate. Janine, Rick, I know we just heard a lot there from Secretary Kerry, but I wanted to focus on the amount of faith that he has really put in the marketplace and in the marketplace's role for bringing about change in the direction of acting on climate change. I mean, he told David today that it's become more expensive to not act on climate change and that corporations are going to be sort of leading in the private sector rather than governments. Is he right? I mean, is it going to be the private sector that's going to wind up really leading everyone into a future with more renewable energy? Well, Emily, let me uh, jump in. And first of all, thank you for hosting today. This is uh, great to have you on board. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have you as part of the Sound On team. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, he, he laid out a very good carrot and stick approach to where they think uh, private investment is going to be. He talked about the need for, you know, disclosure by financial institutions on the risks inherent with climate. You know, people are going to have to start talking about that in their annual reports and in their disclosures. But he also talked about a trillion dollars of investment capital going into places like hydrogen and batteries. He, he, he took it a little further and got into Tesla. And I, I would actually add to him, not only is, is Elon Musk in building electric cars and batteries for houses even, but he, he's also got a, a major solar panel business and, uh, and is really committed to this economy. And, and look how well he's done. So uh, I think as a part of this overall ESG investment strategy, where E is environment, I think you see a lot of businesses now clamoring to find a way to get into this, this sector.
And Jeannie, I know we've only got a couple seconds here. Uh, uh, well, actually, how about this? We're going to get back to you as soon as we get back from the break. I want to continue this conversation on climate. Such a big thing this week. But coming up, we're going to continue looking into climate and talk about infrastructure as well as that ever crucial D.C. statehood vote. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins, along with Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Zonzano and Rick Davis. Jeannie, I know that when we left off for that commercial break, we were just breaking down John Kerry's analysis of the Climate Change Summit. So I want to come to you. I want to get your thoughts. You know, for this summit, it was really supposed to be President Biden's big moment on the global stage to really say, hey, America's back. America's ready to be a leader again on climate change. Jeannie, was he successful? It's so good to talk to you, Emily, on this Friday. And, you know, I do think he achieved that goal. I do think President Biden deserves a lot of credit for doing this within his first, you know, 90 plus days in office, reasserting, as you said, the United States leadership and commitment on this issue of climate change. And that is a big step forward and quite a change from where we were in the last four years. That said, there are also a lot of challenges here. We're talking in terms of the promises he's making about an enormous sweeping transformation of the U.S. economy and society. And there's also real questions about if President Biden has the power, the authority legally to do what he's promised to do. We're starting to hear, and I know you hear this inklings, that he's going to have to make an end run around that Constitution because, of course, he may not be able to get through what he wants to get through and two, with a two-thirds vote in the Senate. So a lot of questions remain, but I do think in terms of reasserting our leadership on this, and as David and, and, and Secretary Kerry were talking about, getting the rest of the world in a conversation, I think a big step forward here. I think a lot's going to depend on what happens in November and in Scotland at this point. One thing I found really interesting about the climate summit today is that we saw this pivot from the president at the end. He was less warning about climate change and sort of the dangers of what's going to happen if it's not addressed. And he then changed to sort of looking at the opportunity that comes with climate change. And we have a little bit of sound on this, him talking about the importance for American workers going transitioning from the fossil fuel industries to a greener future. Let's listen to that sound. As we transition to a clean energy future, we must ensure that workers who have thrived in yesterday's and today's industries have as bright a tomorrow in the new industries. Rick, I'm wondering if you can weigh in a little bit on that. I mean, I feel like this is a message that we've been hearing for some time now, that the future and that jobs, it's going to be in these renewable energies. How much progress has the U.S. realistically made on this in the previous decade? And, and how much can we realis realistically expect going forward? Thanks, Emily. And I, I think you're, you've hit right on. I mean, how much of this is going to happen without a government mandate? And then how much is the government going to have to either uh, uh, force or cajole out of uh, corporate America to get them on the right track? Uh, certainly in the last four years uh, during the Trump administration, we took a big step backwards. Any effort to try and spur renewable energy, uh, you know, a more efficient electrical grids, things like that were put on hold. We kind of, you know, talked about doing other things and, and, and actually reducing 
uh, pressure on corporate America. But but I think corporate America has seen a light. Uh, it, more and more companies are announcing, as pointed out by uh, uh, former Secretary Kerry, uh, that they're going to, like automobile companies, going to EVs. Um, uh, more and more green energy is being developed, offshore wind. Um, I think that it's the kind of thing where the government needs to set a pace. They need to set a standard. And, and Biden has done a good job in the last two days of reasserting, as, as Jeannie said, our American dominance in this issue. And then let corporate America get the message and start following suit. And I, I think it's in their economic self-interest uh, to do that. I think that ESG, uh, those kinds of programs that companies can put into effect, can help their balance sheet not hurt it. Well, Rick, you kind of mentioned something interesting there. I mean, as we're talking about corporations kind of beginning to move towards taking action on climate change, when are we going to see the same from our lawmakers, notably from Republicans? I mean, I know a lot of them represent districts that have jobs that are tied to coal and other fossil fuels, but when are they going to sort of feel the tug of these companies and might have to start shifting their policies and how they talk about climate change? You know, it is interesting. You, you point that out. I mean, you know, they're, they're, the constituencies around coal in America have been getting smaller as coal has had a smaller and smaller footprint in our energy grid, almost to the point where it's, it's got no real power other than the unions associated with, uh, with coal miners. And that's really a Democratic function, not a Republican one. But Republicans have been very slow to the table. Uh, I can remember working with John McCain and Joe Lieberman on the very first cap-and-trade bill, and we had quite a bit of Republican support in those days. And since then, cap-and-trade has become a horrible term uh, politically to use. And so uh, what will it take Republicans to, to get going? I think it's going to be their constituents. Um, more and more, the pressure's not going to come uh, to uh, Republican office holders by corporations. I think they are going to do whatever they think is in their self-interest. But as constituents see things happening in their own communities, uh, they're going to say, hey, look, we've got to get something done about this. And they are informed by what leaders like Biden and Kerry are doing, because if you don't point out the problem to them, they're not going to understand that they need solutions supported by their Republican members of Congress. Absolutely. And I know we've seen a couple of Republicans, Lindsey Graham, going ahead and saying that climate change is human cause. Well, look, we still got more coming up. We still have that D.C. statehood vote that we are going to talk about. It's coming up next. Please stay with us. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Emily Wilkins. Coming up, we hear from D.C.'s non-voting but still standing representative, Eleanor Horton-Holmes-Holmes 
on an historic vote this week on D.C. statehood. I'm Emily Wilkins along with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Earlier today, our colleague David Weston spoke to Washington, D.C.'s delegate to the United States House of Representatives, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, about legislation passed by the House this week that would make the District of Columbia the 51st state of the union. David asked Congresswoman, what's at stake for the residents of the district? We have the sound. I'm a third generation Washingtonian and nobody in, on the Holmes family has ever had equal rights. Uh, and my constituents uh, who have been in the union for uh, 220 years haven't had equal rights. So what is at stake is to give the district the same representation in the Congress that every other state, smallest, largest, that every other state has. And we're getting close to it because Democrats control the House, Senate, and the presidency. Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, when you get over to the Senate side, they have these pesky rules, things like filibuster rules. They need 60 votes. Uh, is it clear to you that they're not going to have to get past the filibuster to get this done? Well, it's clearer than ever because the reason that Democrats got control of the Senate in the first place is because Republicans filibustered everything and got nothing done. So the people gave the Senate to Democrats and Democrats held up organizing the Senate over the issue of filibuster because they recognized that if they didn't do something about it, they'd lose the Senate as well. Now, the filibuster so far has been preserved, but you will see that during this pandemic, they were, have been able to get important bills, including the, the bill that was most important passed. Uh, and it gives me great hope that we will add Democratic senators and that we are on our way to becoming the 51st state. So we have a viewer writing in, and I think it's worth asking because it gives you an opportunity to explain something to people. The viewer says, why don't you just join Virginia or join Maryland? Well, you can't join Virginia because the part of the district that Virginia gave, they took back. In, in terms of Maryland, we are left with the Maryland portion of the District of Columbia, but you can't just give it back to Maryland. Maryland gave it in perpetuity to form the nation's capital. And both of the senators favor statehood and all of the representatives except the sole Republican favor our statehood bill. So all that's left is to give it to us, to give it to the nation. So, Congresswoman, if I'm a resident of District of Columbia, as you say, you, your family has been for three generations now, and you got the statehood tomorrow, what difference would it make in my life? The greatest difference it would make is not that I would get the final vote on the House floor. After all, I'm voting committee now and have all the rights except that final right on the House floor. The most important difference it would mean is that the district would have two senators, as it is, I passed bills in the House. In fact, I've been voted last year uh, the most productive House member, but I can't just hand the bill off to two senators. I've got to go over there and find allies. Fortunately, I have been able to often find allies 
But what it would mean to the district is that we wouldn't have to find allies. We'd have our own senators as well. Uh, take us back to January 6th, uh, something that's etched on all of our minds. It was horrific to watch that attack on the Capitol. If the District of Columbia or the Douglas Commonwealth had been a state at that time, would it have made a difference in the response to that invasion of the Capitol? Well, I think it would have been. However, I should mention that the reason is that we would have had control over our own National Guard and then President Trump refused to call out the National Guard. Every state has control over its National Guard, but I should say that that doesn't even take statehood. I have a bill and expect it to be passed this session that would give the district control over its National Guard. It would have made a tremendous difference uh, in the damage to the Capitol and in the outbreak itself, if the district could have called out its National Guard instead of waiting for the president who had provoked the insurrection in the first place to call it out. That was my colleague David Weston with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. Jeannie Shanzano, let's get real here. This debate around D.C. statehood, how much of it is about voting rights and representation for the 712,000 residents of D.C., more than the state of Wyoming, I should mention? And how much is this about those two additional U.S. senators that would almost certainly be two additional Democratic senators that would get to join the Senate should D.C. become a state? Emily, it's the exact question that you can have to ask people and you hear from Republicans one thing and from Democrats something else. So Republicans tell you this is not about equal representation, but it is a real power grab by the Democrats to get one representative and two senators on their side. And Democrats come back and say, no, it's about disenfranchisement that disproportionately has impacted people of color. And to top it off, what happened on January 6th, we heard David Weston ask, um, ask the delegate Norton about that, and also the pandemic, where D.C. did not get the funding that it would have if it was a state. And so, you know, it depends on who you ask is, is the short answer to this question. And what some Republicans, like uh, some of the more moderate Republicans, are saying, why not just give Norton voting rights? Why not just give her a voice instead of make this a state? In other words, they're trying to find a middle ground. But of course, that's something that Democrats do not favor. And let's not forget, they Democrats passed this on a party line vote last year, did it once again this year, but it is essentially dead on arrival in the Senate because they need 10 Republicans to go along with it. There's no question that they don't have that support in the Senate. And there's even some Democrats who might not support it as well. Right. This is the first time that House members have passed the D.C. statehood bill. They have a Democrat-controlled Senate, but it doesn't matter. It's still not going anywhere at this point. We're coming up, we're going to head to a commercial break, but we have to cover the biggest news in D.C., the infrastructure bill. We'll cover Vice President Harris's visit to New Hampshire. That is up next. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins, along with Jeannie and Rick. We are back. We are going to travel all the way up to New Hampshire today, where Vice President Kamala Harris was this afternoon. She's talking to union workers about the president's infrastructure plan. VP Harris told the group of electrical workers that the White House is ready to make a major investment in unions like theirs. 
to make sure that America stays on the cutting edge of technology and that key keyword for every politician that they continue to create jobs. Here's the sound on that. We're going to focus on putting the money in the jobs that are necessary to get the job done. We're going to put the money in the, in the places like IBEW that are going to train the workforce. Rick, Janine, let's break this down. I know that unions were a big focus for President Biden when he was running for president. It was a group that he's really focused on. He has used the word union a lot in his big speeches. What's the role of unions going forward as this infrastructure plan comes together? Well, I think it depends upon which industry you're talking about. I mean, we all know that uh, unions dominate uh, construction trades like roads and bridges and tunnels and and those things that are sort of what a lot of Republicans like to call hardcore infrastructure opportunities. Uh, But also IBEW and other uh, 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 unions also uh, populate the ranks of technology industry, uh, slightly less manpower-wise, but um, still important, but especially important in states like New Hampshire, where, frankly, it's a battleground state, you know, so uh, we do notice that a lot of the roadshow that uh, Vice President Harris is going to are key places like North Carolina and, and New Hampshire. But, uh, but they will, at least by the Biden administration standpoint, be the workforce that gets enhanced by their infrastructure bill. And so it seems like their support here is going to be pretty critical then going forward. And I know that for this, too, President Biden is really hoping to to appeal to those groups. Um, Janine, do you think that uh, Harris's visit today is really going to have a big impact? I mean, how many more of these visits might she and President Biden need to do to really make sure they are selling their plan to the American people? Is anybody else suspicious that she's in New Hampshire of all places? I think, <laughs> you know, I feel like 2024 is looming, Emily, very, very fast. Um, I was going to bring that up. That's not, it wasn't a mistake that she's there. I'm surprised it wasn't <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> That's right. And it'll be Iowa next, then she'll flip right back to New Hampshire. But, you know, I think obviously the union's critical to the Biden administration. I think they got a big win with the coal miners union coming out, supporting the infrastructure bill. So, you know, they're going to be pushing hard on this. Um, But I don't think any of that changes what is the real question here, which is, are they going to go big and are they going to go on their own on reconciliation on this? And then they have to hold all these people together, including Manchin, all these Democrats, or are they going to compromise? Because this is going to take passage in the Senate. So while unions and other and other groups are critical in terms of, you know, pushing and prompting for their representatives and senators to support or oppose the bill, um, the real question comes down to how they're going to try to get this done. Where do Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema go? And is Biden willing to do this on reconciliation in a partisan manner? I think that's still the big looming question here. Jeannie, I love your point about uh, uh, Vice President Harris being in New Hampshire uh, uh, for for potentially political purposes. The last time she was actually in New Hampshire was for the uh, presidential debate. It's never uh, too early. It's 2024 never too early. is already here. <laughs> Just to remind everybody. But uh, but the point you make, I think, is is really important, Jeannie, and that is that, that regardless of what the current bill looks like, it's going to go through uh, a very tough spin cycle in the United States Senate where – 
members of uh, Joe Biden's own party have already had significant questions. Uh, but there is a deal to be done. I mean, we know that there are bipartisan groups working together at a slimmed down version of the over $2 trillion bill uh, in order to find something that could get bipartisan support to be passed. That would be probably enough uh, for President Biden to declare victory, sign that bill, and then move on to the budget that also is almost $2 trillion of lobbying on the Hill. So I, I think you're spot on. One of the questions that's going to be is what gets dropped out and what gets kept in. And I do think the, the, the pure infrastructure pieces are what seem to be gaining momentum in the Senate. Well, Rick, it seems like you and Senator Joe Manchin are on the same wavelength today. Uh, the key moderate from West Virginia it came out saying that Congress should focus on conventional infrastructure projects. Conventional is in quotation marks there. That's roadways, that's bridges, and that's sort of another sign that there might be some resistance within the Democratic caucus to Joe Biden's larger $2.25 trillion plan. Uh, I, I'm wondering, you guys, do you think that Joe Manchin sort of coming out today and saying that there needs to be focus on infrastructure, does this sort of make it more likely that we are going to see a bipartisan infrastructure bill between Democrats and Republicans? Well, he is you know, from he, a... Oh, go ahead, Jeannie. So, sorry, I was just going to say, I, you know, he is, you know, he's the equivalent of like the swing vote on the Supreme Court these days. He's the most powerful man. So to, to Rick's point, um, you know, I, I do think when he comes out and says something like this, the president's really going to have to listen. Of course, this comes one day after Republicans under Shelley Moore Capito released this plan, you know, around a little less than a billion, you know, 680 or so billion dollars, 700 billion dollars. And people are scoffing at that as if it's nothing, that used to be a lot of money. But for me, what I think I'm really watching for next week is President Biden's state of the state, or, uh, you know, can't call it state of the union, but state of the state on his, you know, the his 100-day speech, because he is supposed to lay out his America's Families plan. And I can imagine, based on what you said, Emily, that Joe Manchin is going to like the amount of spending there or what's defined as infrastructure there. Yeah. And, and remember, too, I mean, today was climate day at the White House. We had this great summit going on. Everybody's talking about how much they hate coal. Where's Joe Manchin from? A coal state. So he <laughs> had to have something different to talk about. And infrastructure is probably right up his alley. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I do think that there is a, a division of labor in the White House right now where this week clearly has been, you know, from Wednesday's speech by the president, uh, on U.S. Uh, activity related to um, climate and our, and our reductions that he plans to do as president and this, this global climate summit uh, on Thursday and Friday. Uh, and, and, and that was all designed to correspond with um, uh, Vice President Harris moving around the country drumming up popular support for an infrastructure plan that if they think they can get people involved in this bill, thinking this will increase the opportunity for jobs, make their lives better in the communities they are in, they'll put the heat on some of these members too and hopefully drive them toward the bargaining table. And so kudos to Joe Manchin for finding a graceful way to not have to talk about climate uh, by actually leaning into one of the other top priorities of the Biden administration on, on infrastructure. Well, Jeannie, I, I want to flip this conversation around a little bit and, and ask you if you think that Senator Manchin's comments, his, his, his saying that we need to focus on traditional infrastructure, is this a death knell at all to the more social infrastructure plan that President Biden has coming out on child tax credits, education, potentially health care? 
I think it is a movement in that direction. And, and you know, the concept of death knell is going to be a big problem if it is for President Biden, because, of course, he's got progressives that he has to answer to. And, you know, I think what what Joe Manchin is introducing into the discussion gets back to something that we've all been talking about. How do you define infrastructure? And to your point, Joe Manchin wants to define it in a much more conventional way, the way Republicans, Shelley Moore Capito and others, Mitt Romney, have in the past and continue to want to. And Joe Biden, working with the progressives, wants to next week in this speech introduce a whole new way of thinking about infrastructure. And I'm not sure where this ends up, but, you know, to your point, if they can't get Manchin to come along, they can't even do this thing on reconciliation. So unless they get another Republican, of course, which seems far-fetched. So to me, it is a big challenge for the Biden administration if he puts his foot down on this. Absolutely. And I think we're all going to be watching very closely next week, uh, April 28th. Make sure that your calendars are marked. That's when President Biden is going to give. Everyone keeps calling it the State of the Union. This is just like the stickler in me. It's not the State of the Union because it's his first time giving the speech. It is a joint address to Congress. And it'll be an interesting one. We're only going to see about 200 lawmakers in the chamber. It won't be packed thanks to COVID. So definitely a different environment. But that's when we're going to expect President Biden to really roll out that next plan with the child tax care credit, as well as other social infrastructure, that's what they're calling it now, uh, things. I mean, I also want to make sure that we are touching on real quick sort of the, the big news that just broke right as the show was starting, which is that uh, CDC advisors are reaffirming the Johnson & Johnson vaccine after the pause. They're going to allow people to take it again. They're going to probably come out with a little bit of guidance on what people who take the shot needs to look for. And so I'm wondering, is this is this good news for a vaccine? Is this going to sort of help more Americans get that vaccine? Real quick, 30 seconds. Rick, do you want to take that? Emily, for sure. I think it's, you know, the J&J stumbling block has uh, muddled the message a little bit about uh, people who want to get a vaccine but aren't you know sure about the safety and effectiveness. Uh, CDC and the FDA coming out strongly today saying they reaffirm the safetiness uh, of this vaccine is going to help the momentum of this administration convince people almost a third in our country who haven't gotten vaccinated yet. Well, Rick, thank you. Janine, thank you. That is it for today's show. Everyone, enjoy your Friday. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you for listening. We'll be back on Monday. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.